pray. Father in heaven, we would ask for a gift right now that you would come and do your work, uh, do it through a, a preacher that is desperately in need of your help, do it for a congregation that is hungry for your word. We are amazed at the gift of the Bible that this is a, a deposit of the living God speaking to us. And we recognize, Lord, the solemn and sacred opportunity now to, to hear the word heralded and preached. It's not enough just to read it, Lord. We, we are called to preach it. And so would you use the preached word in a powerful and, and irreversibly wonderful way in our church. We want to get better at this thing called evangelism. So help us to, to look um, into the life of Jesus and to take some notes and apply these things, Lord, by the power of your Spirit in our lives. And, and may, may, it, may it matter today. May it matter this week. In Jesus' name, amen. This is week two in our Advent sermon series entitled Unsentimental Christmas, an Advent study of Luke chapters 9 and 10. Unsentimental Christmas is our way uh, of allowing the gospel of Luke to continue to shape us this holiday season as we head into a a particular season in our nation especially that, that finds itself swept away by sentimentality. Um, The words of Jesus in general and these two chapters in Luke's gospel in particular are anything but sentimental. Uh, Luke 9 and 10, in Luke 9 and 10 we find our Savior plain-spoken, hard-hitting, razor-sharp in His teaching. And so last week we studied Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 56 and we learned that in the midst of our emotionally fragile culture. We want to strive to become an increasingly steadfast congregation. Remember that if you were here? And we took on board three keys to dealing with rejection in our lives right here from Luke 9, 51 to 56. Those three keys are thicken your skin, soften your heart, and press into the mission. You want to, you want to respond to rejection in a way that brings honor and glory to God? Then thicken your skin, soften your heart, and press into the mission. That's how Jesus teaches us to deal with rejection. This morning, as we consider our Advent study of unsentimental Christmas, we encounter a passage. It's the passage that really struck me more than any other in this particular section of Luke's gospel as as unsentimental. Um, The force of Jesus' words and how very countercultural they are. We've already heard them read once for us, so just consider the scene. Um, Jesus... And by his extension, his disciples and a greater crowd that's with him in in, uh, verses 51 to 56 have just been denied basic hospitality from a Samaritan village. They've been rejected. Luke is an incredibly careful author. He's very astute at how he arranges the scenes in Jesus' life and what comes after what. And as he considers the material in front of him, as he ranges over the life of Jesus, Luke is a very thoughtful communicator. So right on the back end of verses 51 to 56, 
Luke incorporates verses 57 to 62. It's a section that outlines some of the demands of discipleship. And here's the kicker. He's not even talking to disciples here. Jesus is addressing almost disciples. He's addressing could-be disciples. He's addressing would-be disciples. And what he tells them is, to say the least, surprising. Here in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, Jesus does not display so much of a shred of what we used to call in in an earlier generation seeker sensitivity. Our Lord is talking to unbelievers here, but they're unbelievers who appear to be interested in following Him. And this is what He tells them? Doesn't He know how to draw a crowd? Doesn't Jesus know how to win friends and influence people? Well, yes, He does know how to draw a crowd. But far more important for Jesus than drawing a crowd is building His church. Amen? And so these three points before us this morning are going to help us to do just that. So here's here's the big idea. Some of the folks on your list of five are genuinely curious about following Jesus. Yes, they are. If you're praying for them, they are. Some of the folks on your list of five are genuinely curious about following Jesus, and what you tell them in this moment about discipleship is mission critical. So some of the folks on your list of five are genuinely curious about following Jesus. Some of you in this room are not following Jesus, but you're genuinely curious about following Jesus. Some of you are younger. Some of you are close to the faith. You've got your toes right at the edge, and you're not sure whether or not you want to step across the line. And if you have an opportunity to influence people, especially people in this room, what you tell them about discipleship in this moment is mission critical. So our, our fallen human tendency when we're exchanging with someone who doesn't know the Lord is to put on, uh, to make it easier, to, to treat them with kid gloves, so to speak, to soften the edges of discipleship and make it more palatable for them. That's, that's, that's the sort of the, the common wisdom of the day. I just have one question. Is that what Jesus does? Jesus never does that. He deals with people straight up. Jesus doesn't pander to people. He doesn't condescend to people. He respects people enough. He even respects unbelievers enough. He he especially respects unbelievers enough to shoot straight about the cost of discipleship. And you may not believe it, but I guarantee you this, if you have been praying faithfully, even somewhat faithfully, for people on your list of five, they're curious about Jesus. And and some of them are wondering what it might look like for them to become followers of Christ too. And what you tell them matters. So this morning we're going to learn from our Lord three truths that ought to govern and guide our conversations with unbelievers in our web of relationships. The phrase we use around here is sphere of influence, right? People who are drawn to the things of God. Three things that you can begin to tell them starting today. You ready? Point number one. Tell them that following Jesus demands a radical redefinition of comfort. Tell them that following Jesus demands a radical redefinition of comfort. Look with me once again in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 57 identifies this prospective disciple as someone. See that there? 
Luke 57 or 9, 56, as they were going along the road, someone said this to him. Now, where Luke remains generic, Matthew gets specific. There's a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 8, 19 that this man was a scribe. That's interesting. A scribe, a first century lawyer. What's a scribe? Well, John Calvin tells us that a scribe was someone who had been acquainted with a quiet and easy life, who enjoyed honor and was ill-fitted to endure reproaches, poverty, persecutions, and the cross. Now, when Calvin gives that description, I'm not thinking scribe. I'm thinking American. A 21st century American. Even the poorest of the poor in our nation are acquainted to a quiet and easy life. They enjoy honor. They are ill-fitted to endure reproaches, poverty, persecutions, or the cross. Luke may as well have said in verse 56, 57, as they were going along the road, someone from Minnesota said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. How does Jesus respond? He responds with a proverb. It's a proverb about himself. Verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, from his first moments on this earth, Jesus was born into grinding poverty. You realize that? There's earmarks all over the Bible that tell us that. Remember, we remember, especially this time of year, the very first place that Jesus' head was laid. Where was it? A manger. An animal feed trough. That's what they could afford. And Jesus did live in some sort of home with Joseph and Mary and his siblings when he was younger, without a doubt. But by the time of his three-year ministry, as we consider it, Jesus was essentially a homeless man. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. How do you treat homeless people? How do you think this scribe would have treated the prospect of becoming homeless to follow Jesus? Now, how do you treat homeless people on the streets of Minneapolis? How do you treat homeless people at the corner at, at Ridgedale Mall where they're panhandling? How do you treat homeless people here in the West Tonka area? I was approached by a homeless man about two weeks ago who was living in his car and spent some time with me. Well, Jesus has nowhere to lay his head either. And this scribe, a man much like us, accustomed to just about every creature comfort of his day, is now confronted by this statement of our Lord. And how do you think the man reacted? What's interesting, the text doesn't say. Because Luke doesn't really care. Luke wants to know how we react to what Jesus is saying. And even more so, Luke wants to see how people on our list of five react to what Jesus is saying and how we respond to them. Folks on our list of five who enjoy relative comfort and ease and prosperity and affluence, how are we going to present the message and mission of Jesus to someone like that, to someone living in the the broader Lake Minnetonka area or the West Metro? How do we help people in our list of five get their heads around what it means to follow a man who during his earthly ministry was a homeless man? Well, you tell them that following Jesus demands a radical redefinition of comfort. You know, so many of our besetting sins, if you think about it in your own heart, the indwelling sin that's left, it's, it's probably related to comfort in one way or another. 
you chasing comfort. Think about it. Envy, greed, gluttony, lust, all manner of drug and alcohol enslavement, any of these can have idolization of comfort at the heart of them. Even sinful anger and rage can have comfort at the heart of it. Do you know that? Genesis 27:42 Rebecca tells Jacob, "Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you." Do you know that? That's fascinating, not to mention frightening. You know that comfort has become an idol for you when you want something so bad you will sin in order to get it. Or you will sin if you don't get it. Now, there's nothing wrong with a desire for comfort, but when that desire for comfort hardens into a demand, that's when things begin to go sideways. So what's the answer here? Because the human heart craves comfort. We all long for comfort, and the folks in our list of five we're praying for want to be comforted. So what do we do? What do we tell them? We tell them that the problem is not in the desire for comfort. The problem lies in where we are seeking comfort. We spend our lives searching for comfort in our possessions or in desiring the possessions of others. We spend our lives searching for comfort by overeating. Why else would we speak of comfort foods, right? We spend our lives chasing comfort in pornography or illicit sexual relationships or in substance abuse of one sort or another. Or like Esau, we nurse bitterness or even rage in a desire for comfort. And what's amazing is we never find it. These things don't deliver. I mean, not for long. They don't. But do you know who does? God does. Every time. God delivers. King David tells us in Psalm 23, verse 4, you probably know this by heart, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? Comfort me. God wants comfort for His people. Did you know that? Why else would He cry out in Isaiah verse, chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. God wants comfort for His people. He just wants to be His people's comfort. What does Jesus tell us in the Beatitudes about those who mourn? Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That sounds a bit kind of pie in the sky by and by, doesn't it? Well, yes, that's true. By and by, we will be comforted. May we never forget it. It ought to be a motive for us. Luke 16, 25, we read of poor old Lazarus. After his death, it says, He is comforted here. A man who knew very little comfort in his lifetime. Comforted in heaven at Abraham's side. You say, well, is there any comfort in this life for people who follow Jesus? Answer, yes. Uh, The second, the split second, someone on your list of five becomes a Christian. Who is it that takes up residency in their lives? Which person of the Trinity? Third person of the Trinity. Otherwise known as the comforter. John 16, 7, the comforter. Well, how about corporate comfort, like church-wide comfort? We have any of that? Well, yeah, we do. We have that covered too. Acts 9.31, we read about the expanse of the early church. And it's one of my favorite verses in, in all of the book of Acts. So listen to this. Acts 9.31, Luke writes, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace 
and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What a glorious truth. I challenge you, take Acts 9.31 and just bring it with you all day long. I, I do this routinely. I write little scriptures in my pocket and I keep them with me and I pull them out and meditate on them. Take Acts 9.31 and spend a whole day on it. Pray through it, bore into it, enjoy it. Here's one more text on comfort. It's, it's the best one in the Bible. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Paul reminds us that the comfort of God for a Christian in the Christian life isn't just portable. We don't just carry it with, where, with us wherever we go. The comfort of God in the Bible is transferable. We can offer it to other people. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I could talk about this all day, but I can't because we've got two more points, so let's just wrap up this one and head into point two. You get on your knees for your list of five, you move your feet toward your list of five, and you open your mouth to your list of five. What do you say then? What do you put in your mouth? Well, tell them. Tell them that Jesus demands a radical redefinition of comfort. Be honest with them. It won't be a trade down, as our associate pastor Seth Brickley used to say. It will be a trade up for them, big time. Some of the folks on your list of five are genuinely curious about following Jesus and what you tell them about discipleship in this moment is mission critical. So point number two, tell them that following Jesus demands, number two, a radical reordering of priorities. Tell them that following Jesus demands a radical reordering of priorities. Do you follow along with me? And I'll read uh, Luke 9, 59 and 60. Luke chapter 9, verses 59 and 60. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think this is the single sharpest response that Jesus gives to any of his would-be disciples, not just here, anywhere in the Gospels. I can't think of a sharper-edged truth that Jesus ever spoke. He said some awfully tough things to the Pharisees, but most of them were not would-be disciples. But here in these verses, this is, this is brutal. And who starts this conversation, by the way? Jesus. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. Jesus invites him into this conversation. Doesn't he know how this is going to turn out? I think so. This is just painful. But I'll tell you, it's not half as painful as the way he's treated by this man. So let's look once again at this man's reply. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Go and bury my father. You say, painful? That sounds quite reasonable. That sounds normal. What does Jesus want from this guy? I mean, he's not asking for a week's vacation and then an opportunity to follow Jesus. He's not saying, you know what, just give me a season to finish this, this show on Hulu that I've been watching, and then I will follow you. He's not even looking for time to think it over. His only desire is to give a decent burial to his earthly father. Is that too much to ask? 
Where's the crime in that? And the simple answer is that what this man wants to do is no problem, I assure you. Jesus is not against, does not begrudge us the proper burial of our loved ones. What this man does is wants to do is perfectly right. But the priority with which he wants to do it is perfectly wrong. The law of Moses in its rawest form contained two tables, the Ten Commandments. The first table contained four commandments. The second table contained six. The first table concerned the Israelites and their Lord. It governed their vertical relationship with God. The second table concerned the Israelites and one another, governing their horizontal relationships. The first table of the law called Israelites to love God. second table of the law called Israelites to love one another. And the summons that Jesus gives to this man is the summons that comes with the full force of the law and more behind it. The first table. He says, follow me. And the man's response to Jesus is a case of putting the second table ahead of the first. In other words, this man's desire, as noble and as fitting as it is, contains one deadly word. And this man tips his hand in what he says to our Lord. And you see where this his heart of hearts lays. I think it's the word that just stuck in Jesus' cry as he heard it. That little word is first. Verse 59, again. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And I think that's what it all came down to for Jesus. He may not even have realized how wrong he was here. How, I don't think he did. I think this was just so native to him. Of course, father first. And nothing could have prepared him for Jesus' answer to him. Talk about unsentimental. Now, just five chapters later in Luke 14, 26 to 27, Jesus clarifies, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he who does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. In Matthew 10, verses 34 to 38, Jesus says the same thing, but he says it from another angle. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34 to 38, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemies, hear this, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his own cross is not worthy of me. You hear Jesus here? This is what's underneath what he's telling this man. Can't you tell what Jesus discerned from this man's request here in verse 59? This was not so much about honoring his deceased father. This was about putting the second table of the law before the first. It was about loving his earthly father more than his heavenly master. And Jesus sees right through it. Now his comeback is, is one for the ages, I'll grant. Um, Jesus had a sharp tongue, but even this sort of language was a little edgy for Jesus. Verse 60 is intense. There is no way around it. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, and you come and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Jesus is referring to this man's unbelieving family. That's the first dead here. Spiritually dead family members. You have any of those? Yeah. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. The second dead here, of course, is this man's father. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Have you ever been to a funeral where the dead were burying their own dead? I have. I went to an inordinate amount of funerals, I think, growing up for some reason. I never saw someone who wasn't dead burying their own dead until I was about 23 years of age. I never saw a Christian funeral until I was 23 years of age. And it was the sweetest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Home going. The first half of my life was spent watching spiritually dead people bury other physically dead people. Perhaps you know the experience. Well, Jesus tells this guy, look, your father is dead. It doesn't take spiritually living to bury the physically dead. Your unbelieving family can do that. I'm calling you to do what they can't, namely, follow me. And what's this man's response? Once again, we have no clue because that's not the point. The question is, what's your response? And the question is, what will be the response of the person on your list of five when you give them this discussion about priorities? You need to tell them that following Jesus demands a radical reordering of priorities. I've always been captured by Stephen Covey's story of the big rocks. Do you know that? It's a great story, the big rock. So so a man stands before a group of people, perhaps like this, and he has a a large gallon size, wide-mouthed mason jar. And he has a, a handful of large rocks, and he drops each one into the mason jar, one after another. Thunk, 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 thunk. Let's say there's a half a dozen or so. And he asks the people in front of him, is the jar full? And they say, yes. He says, Not so fast. And then he goes over here and he gets a little bag of gravel and he begins to pour the gravel over the big rocks and it begins to make its way around the big rocks. And he asks his listeners, is the jar full? And they say, maybe. He says, well, and he puts it into his pocket and he pulls out a a little baggie of white fine-grained sand. And the sand works its way over the gravel across the big rocks and begins to fill up the mason jar. And he says, is the jar full? And they say, we think so. <laughs> and then he says, well, he gets a bottle of water. And he pours the bottle of water over the grains of sand, over the gravel, over the big rocks. And the water is just beating over the top of the mason jar. Can you picture it? And he says, is the jar full? And they say, we don't know. <laughs> he says, well, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's full. Okay? And then he says, what's the lesson of the mason jar? And one guy, kind of an eager guy, thinks he's really sharp, says, you know what? The lesson of the mason jar is about your calendar. And the lesson is that you can jam a whole lot more into your calendar than you would ever imagine possible. And the man answers, he says, well, that that may be true, but that's not the lesson of the mason jar. The lesson of the mason jar is that unless you put the big rocks in first, you will never get them in at all. And then Stephen Covey challenges you to identify your big rocks in life, right? Marriage, parenting, vocation, maybe religion, maybe self-care of some kind. 
Now, I, I like the illustration. I, I really do. I found it valuable. I use it in counseling, especially with young people. But here's the catch. Jesus isn't a big rock. Jesus is a mountain. And he doesn't fit into our mason jar lives. Jesus blesses our earthly relationships, but he will not stand to be domesticated alongside our marriages, our parenting, our vocation, our religion, and our self-care. Jesus is Lord of all of these. This is the shift we need to make. The question is not, how do I follow Jesus alongside these pursuits? Rather, the question is, how do I display to all of the world that Jesus is king over all these pursuits? That's the question. It's far more interesting and challenging and, frankly, a biblical question. So you've got people on your list of five. I hope that you do. And this season, more than most, they are open. Believe it or not, the door is creaked open to have spiritual conversations with people. Some of them want to know what it means to follow him. So what do you tell them? First, you tell them that Jesus demands a radical redefinition of comfort. And secondly, you tell them that following Jesus demands a radical reordering of priorities. Okay, final point today. Some of the folks on your list of five are genuinely curious about following Jesus, and what you tell them about discipleship in this moment is mission critical. So tell them, number three, that following Jesus demands a radical pursuit of perseverance. Sorry, I lost the alliteration. I, I couldn't. I worked with a thesaurus for a while, and I couldn't come up with it. A radical pursuit of perseverance. Once again, as usual, I've left my time very little for the last point, so I'll try to stay on message, and we'll just look at these last two verses. Once more, verses 61, 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. First, just take a few notes. There are some similarities between this exchange and the two that have already gone before. Like this conversation with the first would-be disciple, this man tells him, I will follow you. I think he has the best of intentions. I think he thinks he wants to. And like the conversation with the second would-be disciple, the man says to him first. You see that? Jesus didn't like it in disciple number two. He doesn't like it here either. Let me first do this or that or the other thing. And like the conversation with the second would-be disciple, this man's ask appears valid. He just wants to say goodbye to his family. That sounds legit to me. Jesus didn't ask me. Add to it that there's Old Testament precedent for this. You know, two weeks back, we looked at how the story of Elijah stir got stirred into the, the text in front of us. Um, remember two weeks back, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven against those who were ministering in Jesus' name, but they weren't doing it according to their, along with them. And we learned that Elijah, the prophet, had done the same thing 900 years ago. He called down fire on people, and, and God let him do it. And it happened. He killed 50 people with fire from heaven. A well, similar situation here, except the Old Testament precedent is when Elijah is passing the baton to Elisha. And Elisha says to Elijah, let me go home and say goodbye to my parents. Let me bid farewell to mom and dad before I come on this prophet journey with you. And Elijah lets him do it. And so there's Old Testament precedent for it. Maybe the man thought this was one of those situations. It evidently is not. So let's... Find what Jesus says to him. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And why does he say that? Well, the text doesn't say. 
but clearly there's some sort of connection we're supposed to make between this man's desire to return home and the temptation that this man is going to have to abandon Jesus in so doing. So let's just deal with the warning as it is. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach observes, the metaphor is proverbial. It refers to plowing with the eyes straight ahead, that one plows a straight furrow. This is especially necessary in Palestine, where a backward look might easily knock one off course in rocky soil. While one hand guides the plow, the other goads the oxen, and the eyes look ahead to where the farmer is directing the plow. Makes sense to me. So what's the point of the proverb? Well, the point is to warn prospective disciples of Jesus that when they begin down the road of discipleship with him, putting their hand to the plow of following Christ, they are never to turn back, not for anything, or they won't be saved. You say, doesn't Romans 10, 13 say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Yes, it does. Yes, indeed it does. And Matthew 24, 13 says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Which is it? You know the answer in this church. It's both. It's both. He who, who, who gets saved? He who calls on the name of the Lord or he who endures to the end? Both. You say, it sounds like final salvation is a bit of a partnership between us and God. And the Bible says, that's right. That's exactly right. Consider Hebrews 3.14. Hebrews 3.14 has become one of the sweetest encouragements for me as the day goes by. Hebrews 3.14 says, and it assures us, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold firm our original confidence to the end. That's a very interesting note of assurance. We have indeed come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold firm our original confidence to the end. You say, don't you believe in once saved, always saved? And my answer is that if I could banish that phrase from the church of Jesus Christ, I would do it yesterday. And not because I don't believe in the truth of it. I believe it right down to my toes and more. (laughs) The Bible teaches that truth, but it doesn't teach the tone of that truth. All true Christians will persevere to the end and be saved. The Bible says it's so. But I believe that what Jesus says here is important. It's important for a potential disciple to hear this right on the front end of their journey. Friends, the body count in the local church tends to be pretty high. Wouldn't you agree? I don't have to tell you that. I know too many folks just in my last 19 years of following Christ who have put their hand to the plow and looked back and aren't following him right now. It seems that they began with Christ, but right now they're the furthest thing from him. Perhaps you know people like that in your life. So this is why we need to level with the people for whom we're praying. You know, Lot's wife escaped from Sodom, and then she looked back. 
Jesus warns us, Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. More than that, the entire nation of Israel came out of Egypt. They were released from their slavery, and then they began to look back. It didn't take two chapters for them to begin to look back. And none of them made it to Canaan except for Caleb and Joshua. Friends, these examples are here for us as a stern warning. It doesn't matter if you came to Christ in 1952 or 62 or 72 or 82 or 92 or 02 or 2012 or maybe this year. It doesn't matter when it is. That's not the pressing question today. The pressing question is, is your hand to the plow this morning? That's the pressing question. And tomorrow, that will be the pressing question for, for Monday. Are you looking straight forward today? And when you share the gospel with your unbelieving family members and friends and coworkers and classmates, do you point them in this direction? Do you encourage them to be in it for the long haul? Tell them that following Jesus demands a radical pursuit of, of perseverance. Well, let's review. Some of the folks on your list of five are genuinely curious. They're curious about following Jesus. And what you tell them about discipleship in this moment is mission critical. Don't trim the edges of the truth. You're not helping them. Tell them that following Jesus demands a radical redefinition of comfort, a radical reorienting of priorities, and a radical pursuit of, of perseverance. And so if you happen to be with us today and you're not a Christian, first of all, you need to know I'm so glad you're here. I want this sanctuary to be maybe not filled with, but, but lots of non-Christians sprinkled among us. I want that to be true. And you have to know that you don't just happen to be with us. God brought you here. And he brought you here, among other things, to hear this specific message. Perhaps you're here because you find the claims of Christ compelling and you're wondering what real Christianity looks like because you want to know whether or not you should take a leap. Well, allow me to quote my friend Kenny Graves who once told me, look deep before you leap. Look deep before you leap. That's what Jesus is saying here. We don't have a promise of health, wealth, and self-esteem for you. We don't. In fact, we have something far better, something far more soul-satisfying than that. What Jesus promises in the midst of suffering and need and God-centered living is that you will know comfort beyond your wildest imagination. That when you finally come to know the deep joy of rightly ordered priorities where God is first and everyone else is second and you are humbly, happily, and appropriately third, you will know the joy of those priorities. And finally, if you're real, you will genuinely know Jesus and you will find yourself being borne along by him. It's the only way I can describe perseverance in the Christian life. He's, he's carrying you as you exert every last ounce of effort to follow him. He preserves us and we persevere. That's how it works. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. So my question is, are you in? By grace through faith, are you in? Will you turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus today? And for the rest of us here this morning who know Jesus, I didn't spin the application this way, but we'll do it here in the last 30 seconds. Not only are these points examples of what you ought to say to people on your list of five, these points ought to be a picture of our lives, right? I just ask you, is it? 
Does your life look like this? From where do you draw your central comfort? Not what would you tell someone else in this church if they asked you, but what does God know in the bottom of your heart? Where are you drawing your comfort from? Is it Christ or is it something else? If you honestly had to answer, how are your priorities in this moment? Is Christ first or is someone or something else first? And lastly, are you running the race with perseverance? Because only those who endure to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you keep us off balance in this Advent season. We, we need truths like this to cut through the, the, the silliness of the season to some degree. We know, Lord Jesus, that you were born into this animal feed trough and, and laid there in the manger. And you grew up to be this man, this powerful tough, truth-telling man. And we thank you for these words. How I pray that they would feed our souls this morning and that they would give us all kinds of fodder for conversation with people in our list of five and make it effective, Lord. We want to see, just in terms of the practical unpacking of this, we want to see men, women, boys, girls converted. We want to see them led to genuine saving faith in Christ. We want to lead them to the waters of baptism this summer out to, out to the lake. May a message like this bear fruit for the summer of 2018 when we stand on the shore of Lake Minnetonka and worship you there. In Jesus' name, amen.